You're listening to the Nature Talks podcast, a podcast about education and connecting learners of all ages with the outdoors and nature. My name is Kevin O'Shea and I'm your host. I'm an early years educator with a passion for connecting kids and adults with the outdoors. I'm a passionate naturalist who spends as much time as I can exploring nature, learning about plants, birds, and bugs, and then sharing my amazing experiences with others. In each episode of the Nature Talks podcast, we'll have conversations with people making education connections with students and nature. More than any other time in history, we need to be sparking a passion for conservation and sustainability with the young and old alike. In this podcast, we'll talk to educators, students, scientists, and citizens making a difference in the world today. Sit back and get ready to learn something new and exciting about nature education. All right, everyone, welcome to episode number four of the Nature Talks podcast. And this week, we're going to be talking to a friend of mine, an educator based in Japan, Sarah Matsumoto. Sarah, thanks for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, Kev. And thank you again, Kevin. This is going to be really awesome talking about something I'm super passionate about. Awesome, awesome, awesome. Now, Sarah has been a uh, a regular um, uh, co-host guest on another podcast that is not about education. Um, so she's a uh, definitely um, you're a veteran podcaster now, but this is the first time to be talking about this topic. Um, well, that's that's even more exciting. Yeah, exactly. So, so Sarah, um, mm. you know, obviously the people who are out there listening, the majority of them are educators. You're an educator. So could you tell the listeners a little bit about your education journey? So where did you start as an educator and how did you end up where you are now? Wow. Yeah. Well, I come from a really long line of educators in, in my family. So, um, my Grandmother was a, 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 a teacher in one of those one-room schoolhouses. Um, when, when she turned 18 years old, she became a, an educator. And um, then it just kind of went down the line. So in my family, we only do two things really well. And one is farming and the other one is teaching. So basically, I think if you think about it, they're one and the same, right? You're, you're growing humans or you're growing animals or crops, right? Yeah. So, so anyways, all around my whole life, yeah, I've had um, really great role models. Mm-hmm. And I knew probably from maybe my freshman year in high school that I really wanted to be a teacher. Mm. And not just a regular teacher. I wanted to be an, I want to be an ag teacher. Okay. Um, yeah. So I didn't, I wasn't passionate about being anything else. I just loved agriculture and um yeah and I wanted to share that passion with with everybody else around me so that came about because of my my time in the FFA so people that aren't in America that's called that's future farmers of America okay so yeah um my my uncle was also an ag teacher and so that was also a really great role model for me so after high school I went to Oregon State University which is the agriculture university in Oregon Graduated with a um, master's or sorry, bachelor's in agriculture education and then was going to start teaching, but then just decided, hey, this is my one chance to go overseas before I settle down. And I came to Japan. I was going to do it for a year or so. A year turned into five. And then at that point, that's when I met my husband and Mm -hmm. um, been here for 20 plus odd years. Yeah. So that's that's where. Cool. That's a very long, long road, but that <laughs> takes us to present day. 
Yeah. So for those of you out there listening, um, I know Sarah personally, we are former colleagues. So we worked Mm -hmm. together for several years at an international school in Japan. Mm -hmm. And and I suppose I, like you, um, Mm -hmm. 20 years ago, I came to Asia for a year. (laughs) And... And, 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 and here I am still. I'm in a different country than you now, um, but uh, here I am. And I'll probably be, you know, if all goes well in a few years, I'll be back in the same country you are there. Um, but yeah, so so you've already alluded to, and it's, by the way, it's always interesting how we get into education. I myself never planned to be a teacher. It, well, I, I kind of got into it accidentally later in life. Um, but you know, here we are and, and, uh, but yeah, so, you know, you've already mentioned uh, a few little points about kind of your background, the FFA, Future Farmers of America. So how would you say your, you know, your upbringing connected you with nature and connected you to the environment? Because I know you, and I know you are more connected than, than the average bear, than the average person would be to the outdoors to nature. You're very knowledgeable. So I was wondering if you could let us know about how like your upbringing impacted you, connected you. Um, I know you're involved in 4-H and things like that. So if you could let us know a little bit about that, that would be awesome. Well, I guess, yeah, I was um, born into the nature. Um, Like I said, my family only knows one or or two things and that's teaching and farming. So that means I was born on a dairy farm. Um, so my backyard was a dairy farm. Um, yeah, we had a yard, but, uh, my mom always loves to tell the story about when I was about one, I was just started starting to walk and toddle and she, um, uh, would leave me in the backyard, which is something we obviously did in the seventies, yep. <laughs> <laughs> not now, but she'd leave me in the backyard and to go grab something out of the house and she'd come back and I would be underneath the, underneath a full grown cow petting her underside under her belly. <laughs> Wow. <laughs> I mean, as any parent would, would imagine, obviously, you know, she was scared to death, but um, she says I was tougher than nails and she knew that I wouldn't, I wouldn't get hurt. And so, yeah, thank goodness those are really gentle old cows that I was under their bellies rubbing. But uh, yeah, so, so I've been, uh, I've been connected to nature my whole life. My mm-hmm. mom took me to the barn because the cows needed to be milked after two weeks old, she strapped me to her back and I was around the cows since I was two weeks old. So, yeah. Um, yeah. If anybody saw my, my, my recent Facebook page about seeing, seeing and and touching cows and it bringing back a lot of, uh, it's definitely something I totally miss. Oh my goodness. Yeah. I think I saw something pop up in your social media in the last couple of days that said something about how you missed the smell of cow poo. <laughs> I didn't necessarily mention poo, but yes, it's definitely. <laughs> well, maybe you said the smell of a dairy farm, and then I the automatically smell of cows. Right? The smell and of cows. So guess- For me, as a non-farmer, the one thing I can remember are these like childhood memories of driving through the province of Quebec in Canada on mm-hmm. our way to my grandparents' house in Ontario, and we'd drive through these like miles and miles of dairy farms in the country, yeah. and like yeah. I remember, like we'd be like, roll up the windows, and like it doesn't help. The smells in the car. <laughs> well, you know what we say? That's the smell of money. The smell of money, huh? <laughs> right? Because without that smell, you don't have any money. <laughs> yeah, true, true, true enough, true enough. As a as a young kid who did not grow up on a farm, I, I can appreciate that now. Um, but yeah, yeah, so that's interesting because my father grew up on a farm. So my the O'Shea family, I'm that mm-hmm. first generation that were, were not farmers. 
So okay. I was removed from that. Um, so my dad, I've heard all the tales of him, same thing, milking the cows. He actually, he had very bad memories of milking the cows because he was, he was the oldest son in the family. So he remembers having to wake up in the winter, the freezing Ontario winters, like when it was still dark outside and having to milk the cows before going to school in the morning. And yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Um, I also, I, for some reason, it's popping in my mind. Some of my aunts told me a story about how they remember my dad would walk out into the farm field, sit down, pull an onion out of the ground, wipe it off on his shirt, peel it and eat mm. it like an apple. My brother does that. My brother really? does that. He does do that. <laughs> that's what my dad it used must to do. be like a country bunkin thing. Yeah, right? Um, yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I can oh. remember too, as you know, the conversations we've had over the years, as you know, I, I enjoy dabbling in gardening and this and that. We've talked about things. And I know you also participated in 4-H, is that right? Oh, uh, yeah. So uh, 4-H starts in first grade. And so I did, we did 4-H. We showed the cows and... Um, we also raised pigs every single year. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, that, I, that was a really um, a great opportunity, um, you know, you, to raise something and to be responsible for it. And then to see it all the way to the very end and, and to, you know, learn some money skills some budgeting skills. And, and um, you know, there's, there's just a, a wide variety of skills that you can, you can learn by, by raising animals. Um, mm. You know, even the same thing with raising pets, you know, I think for, for raising really kind and sensitive children, mm-hmm. having a pet in the house is, is one of the most amazing opportunities to, to, for, for, for your children. Yeah. Um, definitely. I think that's a must for, for kids. And, and if they've got allergies, there's definitely other things that they can raise and take care of to, to gain those kind of, um, those skills. Yeah. No, I, um, I completely yeah. agree. Mm. Um, uh, we've always had dogs and it's really interesting. We were on a, our second dog. My oldest son is 13 and we got our first dog before he was bored. And I always felt geez, he doesn't really care for the dog. But once we got our second dog, he's been incredibly responsible, mm. you know, with, with him and, and, and helping. And, and even when he's only got 30 minutes to, before he needs to go someplace else, cause he's a pretty busy kid. He's the dogs um, taking him for a walk is, is always the top of his list. And so I can see, even though, you know, he didn't seem to bond with the first dog, the second yeah. dog, he, and now that he's older, he's definitely has that responsibility and that, that sense of, 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 of um, wanting to take care of him and, and knowing okay. that his needs come before his own. So, mm. which really makes me super, super proud because as, as a kid growing up, the cows and the pets and the dogs and, and everybody got fed before we got fed, yeah. before we fed ourselves. And so that's just something that I'm really super um, happy to see that he's, he's, um, he's gained those skills as well. So, yeah. It's really interesting, like <clears throat> to draw like a comparison of my own household, like we don't have mm-hmm. dogs, we don't have cats. Um, mm-hmm. And that's for a variety of reasons. But one thing mm-hmm. that we did get a couple of years ago was our first family pet. And uh, we mm-hmm. got guinea pigs. And I had guinea pigs growing up mm-hmm. as a child. We had dogs and cats growing up as a child, too, in Canada. Um, but I always thought they were just such a, a user-friendly, simple, wonderful little mm-hmm. introduction to owning an animal. Because they're mm-hmm. cute. They're docile. Yeah. They do not bite. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, but I think now as my children are getting a little bit older too, they're realizing that finally my son is changing the cages when I ask him to. Um, but they're realizing yeah. more and more now that 
these little cute critters in our house, number one, they bring us happiness. There's an intrinsic joy to having them. Um, But they need us and they are completely dependent Mm -hmm. on us. And if we don't stop and slow down in life and feed them or this and that, they don't get fed. And they can't, they can't go and, you know, they're pets. They can't go and forage for themselves. They can't go to the kitchen and open the fridge and get themselves that lettuce. Right. So they, they, they really need us. And it's nice to see my own children are finally Mm -hmm. starting to get that. That's lovely. That's, that's, that's the reason to get them. Yeah. That's the reason to have pets and with kids. Best combination. Absolutely. Now, um, the, the reason why I wanted to have you on for this episode, Sarah, is because you have spent the majority of your, your life as an educator in Japan. Um, I spent yes. almost 10 years teaching in Japan, and we met at the, we taught at the same international school. But I really feel that the school we taught at was more, I think, influenced by Japanese education than it was by, you know, American curriculum, Canadian curriculum, in, in some aspects. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, so like, for example... So what I want to talk to you about tonight is, or today is, you know, what are some of the things that you've seen over the years in Japan um, through your own teaching experiences, through your children being students at Japanese schools, the, the things that in Japan that the education system does or schools do or where you work, what they do to connect kids with nature, with the outdoors. Um, because I, you know, I, I, I personally think of, think of all those years that we would take a hundred plus kindergarten students into the forest on camp. And like, that's, I mean, I'm now I've been teaching in IB schools in other countries. That's unheard of. And when I tell these stories to people, they're just like, you did what? I'm like, Oh yeah. We took them on hikes up mountains. They, we cooked food over fires. They slept in tents and they were five and six years old. Um, so what are, and and that's maybe something I, I can share those stories later on, but what are the things that you've, experiences you've had well i think on on gen on, as, as a general rule japanese people really um respect nature mm. yeah as a whole you know they um they also respect the the food that is is on their plate mm. and so i think there's a different attitude <clears throat> towards um nature than we would see in Western society, maybe. I think um, even though you're just as far, you're two or three generations removed from the countryside in in most households, the same in America, two, three, four generations now in some cases. Mm -hmm. Um, So they've lost that connection, but yet I still think there's there's a a great respect for, for mother nature, which is, I I think that's, that's where we get, um, that maybe need or you know understanding within education that all kids need that kind of of education and exposure. Yeah, um, I, I, I was just thinking now, like you know, the the the, the main religion in Japan mm. is Shintoism, <clears throat> and from what I know, the little I know, Shintoism is a very earth based religion. Yeah. Very, and I think there's a lot of comparisons that can be drawn towards. Um, indigenous cultures in North America and other countries um, that respect for the earth, the respect for the food that the earth gives us. Yeah. Um, Yeah. yeah. Mm. So I'm sorry, continue. uh, Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I remember that probably one of the first times you and I were working together and we were at that old kindergarten and the kids Mm -hmm. were out there playing and, and a cat 
a wild cat went through the yard and then the kids all went cat cats and then that's the first time you you introduced me to the concept of nature deficit disorder oh yeah yeah and um yeah so I think that was the first time that we probably realized we both had a lot more in common than than we realized Mm. um but yeah at, at, at our old kindergarten we would take the kids rice planting um take them out to a rice field and, and, you know, we would take a hundred and some odd kids and three classes. Yeah. What, 20, 40, about 60 kids. We'd take them and we'd, they'd go out to their knees and they'd plant rice and then they'd come back out of the, the rice field completely muddy. And for some of them, that was probably the first time their feet had ever touched mud yeah. And so <laughs> for some kids, it was great fun because they loved catching the frogs. For others, they were petrified. Yeah, absolutely. But, yeah. But it was great to see them as as they experienced it for three years in a row that by the by the end of the by the third time, they were they were champs at it and they weren't getting grossed out anymore. And they kind of, you know, appreciated that um being able to to go out and and have some maybe some traditional fun some tr- japanese yeah. tradi- traditional fun yeah well when i th- when i think about those rice planting experiences for for those for those out there and i'm sure the majority of you have never planted rice in a rice paddy or rice field but i mean a, a rice field is a flooded um, I don't know what's the term, like an indentation in the ground. It's not like a field like you would think of where you would it's plant. It's a bog. It's a bog. Yeah, it's a bog. Yeah. <clears throat> and th- those kids are walking up to their knees. You know, they take off their shoes and socks. And they'd be up to their knees in this like really thick, goopy mud with frogs yeah. hopping around everywhere. Um, but it came full circle. It wasn't just in spring yeah. they planted the rice. In the yeah. fall, we yeah. would go back, right? Yeah, we'd go back and they would harvest it. And so that was a really great um it was a good process for the kids to see. Uh, yeah. So even when we go back to uh, um, harvest in, in the fall, um, can you imagine we, we, we let uh, the, the three and four and five-year-olds actually use sickles to, to mm. cut the rice. And, and um, it, it's quite, it's quite interesting. Um, they're always very responsible and it seems um yeah, they would find some some serious joy in in being able to to seed the rice that they had planted completely. Um, Absolutely, yeah, and I mean that's the thing. Like we would have we, we would have farmers mm-hmm. that would show them how to use these yeah. sickles, and ironically enough, yeah. that popped into my mind how recently, not recently, a little while ago, maybe a year ago, someone on Twitter asked me, or they they showed it out on Twitter. They're like, has anyone ever? let their kindergarten students use tools like hammers and things and I, all i could think of was like <laughs> yeah of course in japan yeah, yeah um, of course sickles yeah. um <laughs> you know um and i mean <laughs> i can also remember doing some more even follow-up activities you know back at school where we may have prepared food or where they would have <gasps> eaten rice and talked about yeah. these things mm. So I had mm. one year after rice planting, I had a mom and she was um a doctor and she would talk she talked to us about nutrition and then we got a we got some rice with the rice holes still on it and then we ground we ground it up and we showed them you know all of the the fibrous um um holes that that come off of it and to kind of show them the the uh, polishing process uh, too so so that was really that was really interesting as well yeah yeah 
That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, um, you know, we've, we've talked about this rice planting that, you know, you do in school. What are some other different things we've already mentioned about the camp? Um, what are some other, I mean, and you recently went on one of those, or I, I should I don't know if it was not recently, but back in the fall or, um, you know, mm. you, you took, you took, um, you accompanied a very large yeah. group of, of young children out into the wilderness of uh, Japan. Yeah. So my school has a really lot, my, my current school, the one that we don't get to teach together at, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they have a really long history of getting the kids out into nature from second grade, where they go on an overnight field trip to the mountains. So in second grade, they do forest camp. And basically, it would be the equivalent of outdoor school, something like that in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a, a one-night experience for second graders. We take them to a, a campground, and and they go hiking, and they do some, some kind of camp-like activities. For third grade, they go to um, a big mountain, and it's a two-night thing. And we go we go hiking one night to, to the top of the, of the mountain. And then the second day we go to the highest peak in all of the picture. And so that's about a six, that's about a six hour hike round trip. Um, but yeah, so we take 144 students and they gain some independent skills for some of them. It's their first times, their first time away from their parents. And so they have to take care of their own things and they have to be on time to dinner. And we kept preaching to them the whole time. If you don't know what you should be doing, you need to read your booklet. So they all need to, they get their booklet back at school and, and we've gone through it. And if they need to know what they need to do, they need to look inside their book, not ask a teacher. It's time for them to be responsible. So, um, the third grade trip is is fun because then the following year we take them to the exact same spot and go skiing at the same lodge. And so they're really familiar with the area and they just get to see the difference between the same area, different seasons. Fantastic. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So that's, mm. and then that's so cool. in the summertime, uh, in fifth grade, then they go swimming in the sea. Nice. Nice. <laughs> I mean, it's just amazing. Again, um, you know, uh, you know, when I think about like the kind of perspective of, of an international school, um, uh, and I don't know what VS the this kind of J- Japanese education, mm. you know, the, the term risk assessment keeps popping up in my mind, and you know, <laughs> like you talk about risk assessment, that's something that's like you know comes up a lot when you talk about yeah. like yeah. Um, activities, you know, at a school. Not just, I mean, also that's you know, I. I I was working on an environmental education course um, over the fall, and that's one of the mm-hmm. one of the elements in some of the lesson plans. You know, if it's a field trip, you've got the risk assessment in there, and um, you know, we were talking about having kindergarten children going away on a camp for several days, and you know, yeah. hiking in mountains where there, you know, lots of potential things could happen. Using yeah. a sickle to harvest <laughs> rice, you know, swimming yeah. in the ocean, um, yeah, and. But these are things that, from my experience and being married to, you know, having a Japanese spouse, like, this is just normal. There's nothing, yeah, like, I, why Why would you bat an eyelash? This is this is what we do. Yeah. I, I think a lot of that is, um, I think in Western society, we've, we've, we've kind of risked, we've child-proofed their life. Yeah, <laughs> You know, right? they, they don't learn how to take their own risks. 
Um, I remember a long time ago, um, we used to have a cafeteria lady when we worked together at, at uh, that very first kindergarten. And she used to use the, the analogy that we should push children from behind instead of being in front of them to catch them before they fall. So I think a lot of that is, is, is a good analogy in that um, with environmental education, there's a lot of chances for the kids to learn how, to, how far they can go on their own without um, using their own senses. You know, um, I think kids have lost their own sense of, of what they're capable of doing. And then I think a lot of times adults sell them short. We sell I, kids short. I, I completely agree. And I know that from my time in Japan. And mm. um, I'm, I celebrate the fact that I had the opportunity to teach in, in the country for so many years and experience these things as you have. And at mm. the same time, then that really frustrates me when I, mm. after I've left Japan, because I see what children of a young age are absolutely capable of doing safely if given yeah. the guidance yes. And, yes. and 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 the opportunities. So like as an as you know, with international baccalaureate schools, IB schools with the um IB learner profiles, they often, you know, they, they one of the learner profiles is being a risk taker. And we throw those that, that term around a lot. Be a risk taker, be a risk taker. You know, um stand up in front of a room and read a and and and, and read the story out loud or this or that. And we, we talk about being, you know, giving children the opportunity to be risk takers, but we don't often give them those opportunities, um, you know, in that sense of the term. Um, but I think, I think, hmm. well, uh, well, I I think of too, like with, uh, with regards to environmental education, outdoor education, do you remember the playground that we used to take students to at that kindergarten we worked together with in, in, in Japan, (laughs) where it was like this gigantic cement mountain with rebar, rusty rebar, like ladders on it and and like stones sticking out that had been like um, cemented into this mountain. So the kids Mm -hmm. could climb up the cement stones and then this giant spiraling slide. And I think if for any parent probably back home now in 2022 where I'm from mm-hmm. or maybe parents <laughs> at schools I work at I've worked at recently yeah. would look at that and just be horrified but in 4 years of teaching at that campus and we would bring the yeah. kids there every single day pretty much rain or shine yeah I think the worst injury we ever had was mm-hmm. like a scraped knee or a scraped elbow yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. because the children knew they learned mm-hmm. what they were capable of and they learned again that their own risk assessment and their own risk management. Um, yeah. you know, how 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 do I navigate this play structure safely on my own and exactly. how do I do it? And um, you know, again, that was I think I think myself when I first saw that thing, I went, ah, yeah, yeah, definitely. No, well, even when we uh, when we were playing in in our our um, the the playground at the school, and there was all those rocks, and the Japanese teachers would say, "Watch out! Don't get on the rocks!" And you and I look at each other like, "Why not?" <laughs> rocks start to be climbed and to to jump off of, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, they're fun things to climb. They're fun things to climb. Or or when we would take the kids for long walks and and. Um, some of those in the administration would question if taking kids for long walks was educational practice, good 
practice, but then parents would thank us because the kids would become stronger and, and gain more, um, you know, confidence to be able to, to walk on their own because a lot of kids in Western society and even in Japan, they're, they're car kids. Yeah. They don't have to walk for very long. And so I just, I always stick in my mind, this one girl that we had, um, and she could never walk in, in the very first year. We would have to pull her and pull her. But by the end of the year, she was able to, to walk on her own because she had you know, gained that, that experience. Yeah. Well, that was a beautiful thing about that. I mean, you know, warts and all, and every school has its warts, but mm-hmm. every school also has, um, you know, silver linings. And one of the things that I, yeah. I always embraced, and I talked about this in that TEDx talk I did about uh, I Love Bugs, that mm-hmm. was the park where we brought those kids, where I learned to love bugs in such a deep way. But so many kids, we would bring kids to that park since we didn't have a playground at our school itself. We would have to cross a busy street, go up and into this park. And we would literally spend, I'd say, at least a full hour, if not two sometimes or three, every morning in that park, just running, walking, exploring, uh, we were really spoiled when you think about it. There was a castle there, a Japanese yeah, castle, yeah. forest yeah. trails, <laughs> ponds, you know. Yeah. Um, but okay, so I, I guess we've already we've already kind of dipping our toes into this one. But if you were to, I mean, you are addressing an audience of mostly international educators, educators in America, Canada, the UK, Australia. What are some of the lessons you think that schools, administrators, educators outside of Japan could take away from the way things are done in Japanese schools? You know, I think the biggest thing um, is as educators, our job is to, um, to give the students the, the feeling of, of responsibility and, and own, and to own their own autonomy, to be able to, you know, understand how far they can push themselves. What are their limits and instead of teachers and classrooms and walls putting limits on our own students, I think that should be the, the foundation for, for any child's educational um, career. Um, yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we could do that, you know, get the kids out of the classroom instead of, you know, waiting in, in America, we don't take them to middle or to outdoor school until middle school, mm. you know, get the kids out. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, an expert on American education, but I'm not really sure why they don't think they can take, you know, the kids camping earlier. Um, you know, get the kids out. Um, instead of just talking about SDGs, let's actually talk about it and then put the, put it into practice. Mm, Um, Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think, I think that's, I mean, and there are some definitely progressive school districts in American Canada that do have, some outdoor education programs that are doing amazing things, but those are not the standard, you know, that's not Mm. the common thing. Um, And I I think about, you know, the whole concept of embedding this environmental education, this nature connection into Mm. curriculum. And I mean, as an international school teacher, as an IB teacher, yeah, sure. We do that in one unit of inquiry a year, but (laughs) um, what I saw well, in at Japan. my school, at mm-hmm. my current school, we we the, the kids in the from third grade on they start taking science classes and they have reclaimed a wetlands which was basically a runoff area. Wow! And they've turned it into um, 
four different areas. Um, and two of those areas is a rice pad or rice paddy. So one is for the junior high school. One mm-hmm. is for the elementary school. Um, the third graders and fourth graders, they, they spend part of the year um, preparing the rice patties for, um, for harvest. And then they go out during class and they also heart and then they get to harvest it. The other areas are small ponds. Mm-hmm. Um, was it probably about a month ago? We had a we had a fall cleanup after after harvest every single year. Um, farmers, you know, clean up the area before winter and then to you know let it rest before they um, come back in the spring to prep it for the next um, cycle. And we had a Saturday where, oh. Gosh, I think we had over the course of the day, we had about 30 families come to help us clean up the area. And one of the things was we needed to get the all of the, the living little bugs and creatures out of the ponds because we got two little tiny ponds. And we, we told the kids to get into the ponds and they had nets and they were up to their up to their knees and mud and water and and we were harvesting all the little life creatures, and it was so much fun because they were just like, "What's this? What's this? What's wow, this?" Wow, that's so it's like a bio blitz. You got a bio yeah. blitz commit, and it's yeah. mixed with um, it, uh, that Japanese TV show that my family loves, uh, SOS. Um, ah, where, yes, it's like SOS. Where, yeah. And that's something that, again, for those who listen to episode one of this podcast, yeah, haven't go back and listen. You can hear my TEDx talk where I talk about my passion for bugs and stuff, and I talk about this incredible TV show. And oh, I think it's incredible because it's neat. Yeah. They they basically restore ponds and things like this, and they yeah. have celebrities going in mm. and doing that, collecting every fish and frog, yeah. and like saving them, documenting them, kind of cleaning up the pond. Yeah. Bring it, yeah. making it healthier, and then putting all the stuff back, unless it's invasive, yes, exactly. and then they they remove that's, the invasive that's things. Exactly what they were doing. We 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 collected all of the the living creatures, and then we needed to fix the pump the next mm-hmm. week, and so we had okay. a company coming in, and so the kids are the best ones to and to have the most patience to be able to to sort through all of the the rocks and the rubble to be able to find those living creatures, which was yeah, yeah, just yeah. You know, it, it was just really one of it was the the highlight of my year was to really just to get dirty and 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 connect That's with awesome. nature with the kids yeah and then on, on top of it a lot of people know about japan they have a, a an affinity for um for sweet potatoes that have been roasted on a, on a barbecue and so we had sweet potatoes for the kids at the very end. And so that Fantastic. they had harvested because our kids also um, have, we have a small um, field for um, sweet potato um, farming as well. So, yeah. Which is another activity we used to bring the kids on when we worked together, yeah. sweet potato harvesting. Yeah. And my own kids, when they went to school in Japan, got to do that as well. Yeah. Um, wow. Fantastic. You know, you know, I think the one thing I want to say to administrators, you know, um, you know, find, find one thing, find one thing. You don't need to be fancy about everything all over the board. Find one thing that your school is going to, that's going to be their signature project and stick with it. You know, staff changes, you know, from year to year and, and those that you know, start it. And a lot of times, you know, we'll have a really great teacher. will start a project and then they leave. And then mm. that project dies, you know, as a school, 
commit yourself to one one project and and you know everybody it will be everybody's project not just that one teachers but all the whole school needs to buy into it and that always comes from the administration when the administration provides the leadership to say hey this is what we're gonna do and Mm -hmm. and you know we'll do it because it's good for the kids you know, um, but also I understand that takes um, that takes time from the teachers as well, and so the administration also needs to to kind of build that into everybody's schedule as, as from a from a scheduling standpoint as well. You know, a man point stand of point of view. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, yeah. absolutely fantastic advice. I, I totally agree with that. Like. Mm-hmm. And, and that's a topic that's come up in so many conversations I've had recently about that whole the idea of, you know, inspiring teacher has great idea, starts project, moves on because of yeah. life reasons, career reasons. Um, especially like I, I'm a Canadian with a Japanese spouse living in China right now. You know, like it's 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 a this is not where we will be forever. Um, yeah. You know, um, yeah. that's definitely in the international circuit, but even within you know, if a school district in America, you know, teachers mm-hmm. transfer to other schools, they move to other cities, they retire. And um, you That's definitely kind of what happened with me as well. We have a the head of our biotope or we call it our Sato Sato project, the head of our Sato Sato project, he's retiring in two years. And so they asked me and, and another Japanese teacher to join because mm-hmm. in, in the end, we will probably be the ones that would be um, following in his footsteps. So, you know, we can build those kind of um, structures in so that the projects continue on and then it's not for waste. Fantastic. Yeah. So mm-hmm. cool. So cool. Um, well, folks out there listening, um, I don't want to keep Sarah much longer. She's an hour ahead of me. It's getting later for her. Um, some great, great insights, great tales of, of what happens and, and, uh, in Japan with different schools and, um, I know that, you know, I had some fantastic experiences. Weren't always things I agreed with, but that, again, that's the way it works at any school, right? I mean, um, no, no, no school is a perfect place to be. No education system is perfect, but we can always learn from other places and take pieces that work here and there and, and, and make things better where we are. Um, yeah. So, Sarah, um, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. And I was wondering if, if, if you're on social media, you got a place out there where people want to reach out to you, where can they find you on the old social medias? Oh, the, the best place is to just go to my Instagram. And um, that's where I put everything, all nature things, all, all nature related stuff up there. Um, and so you can just find me. It's called my uh, my username is Sarah Colbe, just S A R A H, Sarah with an H, and Colbe is in Colbe beef, K O B E, Sarah Colbe. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm holding a co- a Kobe coffee mug right now because <laughs> I used to live in Kobe, folks. Um, cool. So that'll be in the show notes, everyone. Uh, Instagram.com/slash Sarah Kobe, and go check yeah, out her stuff cool. over there. Um, yeah. yeah, Sarah, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me on. I definitely, it's so awesome. Um, yeah, it just it's so it's so fun to connect with people that uh, are passionate about education and and understand how important nature education really is. Well, again, I would like to thank Sarah for taking the time to come on the Nature Talks podcast, the Environmental Education Podcast, and sharing her wonderful experiences working, teaching, educating 
in Japan. I hope you guys had a few great takeaways from this interview. Now, of course, you can find Sarah on Instagram at Kobe Sarah, as she mentioned. Links will be in the show notes. That's all the information underneath the podcast. Of course, I'm Kevin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Mad for Maple. You can follow me on Instagram at Shizen Wildlife, S H I Z E N Wildlife, and that link will be, of course, below. And join the Nature Talks podcast Facebook group. It's a closed group, and it's a place where I definitely want to build community, share lots of information about environmental education and what you can do to make a difference in environmental education. Now, also, of course, please leave a rating and a review. We would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Apple Podcasts, over on Anchor, wherever you listen to the Nature Talks podcast. And share it. Share this podcast with your PLN. Share with your colleagues, your coworkers, your administrators, those you know. Share with those of you who, friends of yours who are not educators. There's something I think we can all take away from this as parents, as teachers, as people who are concerned about conservation, who are concerned about climate change, who are concerned about making the place we call home, Earth, a more sustainable place to live in. All right, guys. Well, that's it for another episode of the Nature Talks podcast. Thank you so much for all the support you've been giving, all of the positive feedback, and thank you so much for helping this brand new podcast grow. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're happy, I hope you're healthy, and I hope you're staying safe because you know what? Now more than any other time in the past, we really need to work hard to be safe. Take care. <laughs>